Welcome back to the Hunt, Gather, Talk podcast, everybody. I know it's been a little bit of a time since I last recorded an episode. Well, Miss Rona had something to say about that. But now that we are headed into the fall upland bird seasons, we are back with the second half of season two of the podcast, and it's going to be an amazing one. We're going to hit a lot of the most iconic upland birds this fall, and we're going to start off with arguably one of the most significant, and that is doves. Yep, dove season starts tomorrow on September 1st. And it is a huge deal for a huge number of people from all across the country. It tends to be a hunt that is celebrated mostly in the hot weather parts of the country. So from California through Arizona and Texas especially, and then on over to the deep south and up into the Virginia area. Doves are the most popular game bird in North America, and they are the foundation of many a Labor Day feast. So without further ado, let's take it away. And with me today, I have Jorge Ramirez of Upland Jitsu and Owen Fitzsimmons of the Texas Department of Parks and Wildlife. Did I get that right? Is it Parks and Wildlife in Texas? Texas Parks and Wildlife Department. Yeah. There you go. Uh, every every fishing game or game and fish or or DNR, like they all have different names, but you you know it's the department in Texas that runs hunting and fishing and and other stuff. You captured the essence of it. Yep. <laughs> so today. I, I'm really excited about today's conversation because we're going to talk about a game bird that has all it ha- kind of has it all. It has abundance. It has controversy. It has various species. It is easily accessible. It's challenging. And it's got all of these things. And it is also a bird that has cultural significance in a great big part of the country. And that would be doves. So this is going to be a kind of a geek out section with all of us talking about not only the biology and the habitat, but also tips on hunting, um, how to actually hit doves, which is an issue. And then we'll finish up with cooking and prepping and eating because they are immensely delicious, as all three of us know. So let's start by uh, introducing ourselves. I mean, uh, you know me if you listen to this podcast. I'm Hank Shaw with Hunter Angler Gardner Cook. Jorge, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, sure. Um, so, you know, first I'd like to just you know thank you for actually pronouncing and getting my name right. A lot of people have trouble with it. A lot of people actually know me by George. So, you know, again, I appreciate that. Do you know how <laughs> I learned about Jorge? So back when I was a kid, there was a great outfielder for the, the Toronto Blue Jays. Uh-huh. Now, when he first came up, his baseball card said George Bell. And then they started the, his baseball cards changed to Jorge. And then when you watch the the Toronto Blue Jays play the Yankees, this is back in the 80s, I guess. They would say Jorge Bell. I'm like, oh, okay. So it's just, that's that's how you get it. <laughs> you just have to be exposed to it. Yeah, and yeah, unfortunately, there's you know a lot of people, and especially maybe the industry that you know don't have a lot of exposure to, uh, you know, Spanish names, Hispanic names. So yeah, I appreciate that. So thank you so much. So yeah, a little bit about myself. Um, I uh, run a website called Upland Jitsi, the art of upland hunting. My main objective with creating that site was just intro- introducing hunting tactics and, and and just, you know, introducing hunting in general as, you know, the you know, the, the sport and, and the art that we all uh, love to, to a new generation of, of hunters. And um, I uh, also hunt without a dog, so I also provide, uh, you know, just tactics and 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 how to's on on how to on how to hunt upland game out there 
I also am a dogless hunter. Yeah, I mean, I, that's that's one of the things I love about about you, Mr. Shaw, and uh, you know, it's 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 you know, one of those one of those clubs that is that is a uh, you know pretty exclusive in some ways because you know there's there aren't a whole lot of us out there that are you know in the public eye that you know will tout that out with some pride. I don't know if it's a, a pride or not, but I'm not ashamed of it. I think is probably the way mm-hmm. to put it. I mean, you know, there's a bunch of people that go, I don't have a dog. And like, I, you know, I travel well before Miss Rona changed everyone's life. I traveled mm-hmm. a lot. And uh, yeah, I mean, to be mean to have a dog because, you know, I'm, let's, let's just put it this way. When I go to the airport in Sacramento at the Southwest counter, they're like, Mr. Shaw, nice to see you again. So that's super not conducive to a hunting dog. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't, yeah, I didn't really well. know it was a shameful thing. I, I've never really heard anybody say it like that. It's not for doves, not for so this topic of conversation. There's lots of people who hunt doves without a dog. But I mean, if you're talking about quail or, well, yeah. Yeah. you know, grouse or something like that. Yeah, there's oh, especially especially quail uh, and especially roughed grouse and things like that. There's there's actually quite the controversy between the the dog and the dogless hunter in that particular realm. So, Owen, introduce yeah. yourself. Yeah, um, Owen Fitzsimmons. I'm, I'm the Dove Program Leader uh, with Texas Parks and Wildlife Department. Um, as I told you in our, our phone conversation before, my official title, I say Dove Program Leader because that's, that's a little easier to digest, but uh, my official title is Webless Migratory Game Bird Program Leader. Uh, so I also cover um, uh, some of the operations for sandhill cranes, woodcocks, snipe rails, and gallinules in the state of Texas. But um, been in my position for a few years now. Grew up in Northeast Texas, been in Texas pretty much my entire life and my entire career. Uh, been lucky enough to do some things uh, that not a lot of people get to do. Uh, managing a game ranch uh, in South Texas. Uh, I worked with migratory non-game birds on the Texas coast for several years, which took me to some pretty far off places. I got to visit uh, you know, northern Quebec, uh, a few other places like that. So um, pretty cool pretty cool work there, but... Uh, but yeah, now I'm stationed in Central Texas, and uh, and doves are kind of my life. Even though I've got the other species that I, that I work with, but doves are the are the kind of the 90% of of what I spend my time on. That's and you know the one thing that is interesting and unique about Texas, and we're going to get into this in a little bit, is to my knowledge, it is the only state where you can hunt four species of doves. That's yeah, that's true. Yeah. Uh, well, I don't, I don't know if that's true. It, it's true that you can in Texas. I don't know about anywhere else. Yeah, I mean, there somebody will somebody will let us know um, once we public once this airs. But if there's a uh, there's a weird dove called the white tipped dove, which is common in Mexico, but not so common in the United States. And and we'll get into that one in a little bit. But let's start because there's a thing about all of us that is significant, and that we are from. California or Texas. Now we could have Arizonans or New Mexicans or 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 Oklahomans or South Carolina. But the, the the thing about dove hunting, if you're listening to this, because some people listening to this might not view doves as a game bird. And I want to actually start this conversation with a little bit of controversy. So doves are not a game bird in the Northeast, and they're not a game bird in Michigan, and there is a reason for that, and it's a pretty ugly, dark reason. So if you go back about 120 years ago, there, the, the people who created seasons, the people who created bag limits, the people who ended market hunting. So all of these things that they did 
are a net positive. They created the North American model of wildlife management, which is why we have so much game in North America right now. Well, the ugly side of that was that they were super, super bigoted. And I say this because it has direct reference to the the presence or absence of dove hunting in those states. So they led a campaign in around 1900-ish, you know, give or take 10 years, to classify the dove as a game or as not a game bird, as a songbird, strictly to keep black people, Hispanic people, and Italians and poor white trash was their was their phrase from hunting this thing that they had such a cultural tradition of hunting. And you, you see it like the there's a guy named William Hornaday um, who wrote a book called Our Vanishing Wildlife, and there's this whole chapter about disparaging dove hunting as something that the lesser people did and so there's this crazy old really ugly background to why you can't hunt doves in certain parts of the country and it's it's been ossified into this attitude in that one part of the world whereas in the entire rest of the world doves are a game species especially their their larger cousins the pigeon so I don't know if you guys knew that, but that's a little bit of history that underpins the fact that you can't legally hunt these birds in about 15 states, something like that. The the entire up, upper northeastern region. Yeah, I know it was considered a quote unquote a gentleman's sport um, back in in the day. Um, I I don't know that much about the history, the social history of it, but uh, I have read some of that. It's interesting because there's another, you know, you mentioned it. It was considered a gentleman's sport, and when this these motion these movements came in, it was after Reconstruction. So it was also a dig at at the ex-members of the Confederacy. So there's there's all kinds of crazy stuff that goes on in the history of that, and and it's one of the things that's fun about looking into the history of hunting is to see, oh, that's why that is. <laughs> <laughs> But the three of us are from areas where dove hunting has always been culturally significant. So give me an idea of what dove hunting means to you. And let's like in terms of like growing up and how long have you hunted and all that kind of stuff. And, and what is it? Give me some stories or anecdotes or, or ideas about the cultural significance to, of dove hunting to the rhythm of your year. For, for myself, um, I honestly was not a big upland hunter uh, growing up. I, I grew up primarily deer hunting in Southern California. Um, it wasn't until about when I was in my, my early to mid-20s when I started getting into upland game. And primarily, I was hunting um, quail, both in Southern California and Arizona, Honestly, with with Dove, it was something that I didn't really I didn't really um, get into until a couple of years ago, and it just it, it kind of just blew up for me um, uh, out here in Southern California. I think there's you know a, a, some pretty good opportunities to to get into into Dove um, these days. I primarily um, I, I hunt uh, Eurasian collared Dove, which you know I've written about uh, pretty it feels like extensively over the past few years and. Yeah, I mean they're 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 a great bird to hunt. Uh, you know, morning dove. You know, they they were typically just a you know a by chance byproduct of out you know being out hunting sometimes. But you know, it, it's something that you know I, over the past couple of years I I've started to do and something that I've kind of grown to enjoy as well. And you know, it's 
definitely present presents a challenge as a as a game bird you know for myself and you know uh, that's uh the the empty boxes are testament to a lot more misses than than down birds that's for sure <laughs> we're definitely going to get into the uh the the ammunition manufacturer's best friend aspect of dove hunting absolutely so owen what does dove hunting mean in texas well in texas uh it's it's the sport man that's um we have three to four hundred thousand people a year uh participate in dove hunting and and for me personally i grew up in in a very wooded uh, rural area in east texas so we didn't have a lot of doves growing up you know i would take pot shots at a few here and there but um I grew up kind of in a family where we, you know, we hunted lots of small game, basically anything we could. There just wasn't a lot of opportunity for doves. And it wasn't until I went to college in Kingsville, Texas, in South Texas, where I spent uh, Kingsville and Corpus. I spent a lot of my adult years. That's where I really started picking up on on dove hunting. And and that kind of became a big thing for me. Uh, But, you know, for a lot of people in Texas, it's it's the first hunting that they do as a kid. It's it's something that they do every single year. It's a big tradition. People get their families out that first day, you know, that first weekend. And, uh, you know, it's something that that kind of defines the start of the hunting season. It really is. And it's that that holds true in the entire southern tier of the United States from the Atlantic to the Pacific. So uh, I didn't know about your your dove hunting background, Jorge, but if you go to the Imperial Valley, uh, and Coachella and in that part of Southern California, mm-hmm. dove hunting is every bit as much of religion as it is in Texas. And have have any of you guys ever been to Yuma? Still haven't. One of these I, days. Yeah, I have not had the opportunity. It's one of those things where you know, as a as a dove hunter, anyone that calls themselves a serious dove hunter, you know, needs to go out to Yuma. You know, it's kind of like the mecca for for dove hunters, I would say. It really is. So the so Yuma and Brownsville would be the other like if there's points on the cross of of pilgrimage to hunt doves, Yuma <laughs> would be one of them, and Brownsville would be the other. And both of them are on the on the Mexican border. In fact, Yuma is pretty much a Yuma and well Brownsville's a little separated from Matamoros, but both of these places are like on the border. <laughs> mm-hmm. And the thing about Yuma that's special. Is to my knowledge, now there could be other places and, and people will let me know uh, after this airs, but to my knowledge, Yuma is the only place that where they turn the, the streets out for everyone for dove season. Like it's a it's the big festival or a big festival of their year. And there's signs in, on every street saying welcome dove hunters and and the, the JC's club and all the the show, the, uh, the social clubs are, are raise money by plucking your doves for you and. You can go to any any restaurant and you can bring your doves in and they will cook them for you. And there's a weird contest for sounds awful, but it's but it's but it's perfectly PG. It's the big breast contest. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's not what you think. Uh, it's at a place called Sprague's, which is the local sporting goods store there. And every year there they say, all right, well, you have a really big old dove. So which whichever dove has the the biggest breast meat on it, and it's it's kind of an odd thing because, but you win a prize and some sporting goods and everything, and it's been done for I don't know a generation, maybe longer, and it's a huge deal. And there's this public land area, it's like an arroyo, which is uh you know dry creek bread, with lots and lots of trees and brush in the center of it, and it goes for miles, goes for I don't know god two three miles. And there's parties of dove hunters on either side of this arroyo, and it's safe because you know there's so much brush in between, and everybody's shooting towards the fields and not at each other. 
that there's people on either side of this thing and it goes forever. And there's parties like, I don't know, every hundred yards, 200 yards. And you set up in these little pods where like me, you know, like be the three of us and we'd be there. And so we've got this little angle of, of where we can shoot. And then the next people would be down there and so on and so forth. And it's this incredibly loud firing line of hundreds of people hunting doves in this big line. And weirdly, everybody has a good shoot. So there's very little bogarting of each other's uh, birds because the birds just run the gauntlet. And you do end up seeing occasional um, birds that suffer the fate of Scarface uh, at the end of that movie, but which is unfortunate. But it's a generally an unbelievably interesting and fun time. And it's very different from dove hunting that I'm used to in California, which is kind of onesies, twosies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's I, some places along the Texas border. Um, like you said, like you mentioned in Brownsville, there's some pretty historic pictures of, of people, uh, you know, a century ago or, or 50, 60 years ago, even uh, lined up with their cars, basically bumper to bumper on the border, just, just shooting everything that comes across. And, uh, pretty incredible to think how how chaotic that must have been and and how nobody you know everybody made it out alive well, i hope they did yeah i mean it's it's I, I mean even a very small portion of that i i've hunted on a on a ranch in brownsville and there had to be i think there were probably 50 of us and, and it was a private ranch and it was a big box too so it was like shoot with blue sky behind you (laughs) and nobody got shot and like but but i tell you the reason why they can do that both in yuma and in brownsville is there are clouds of doves clouds of them i mean clouds like it's like the pictures you see in argentina yep yep i've I've seen it i've seen it's pretty incredible no i i've always likened um dove hunting to like a uh like a get together like a barbecue like a tailgate basically and i think that that that's always what has its big appeal to uh you know especially you know people that you know i guess the weekend warrior you know we we would call these types of hunters weekend warriors just because you know this is the only time of the year that they go out uh you know for you know any type of hunting or any type of outdoor recreation and it's it's a good segue and a good introduction for for beginners as well so yeah i think that just really has its appeal and it's really cool just to you know see these guys lined up and you know everyone's just kind of having a good time and you know most people that you know shoot straight get a get a get a couple of doves in in the vest as well so yeah it's Labor Day in mm-hmm. the southern part of the United States. It's what you do on Labor Day. I mean, there's always a football game um, there. You know, so there's, there's that on the radio. It's social. You don't have to be super hidden. Um, I mean, you, you know, I wouldn't wear blaze orange or anything, but I, I don't know that I really ever wear camo unless I happen to have a super lightweight camo shirt that just is comfortable. You sit on a bucket or, you know, or lean against a fence or under a tree and you can – you know, you can talk to each other. So, I mean, it could be I might miss a bird and be like, Jorge, coming to you. And that bird's still going to come to you. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's a it's really a gateway sport for a lot of people because it, it doesn't take much money. You know, just a shotgun, a bucket, some shells, a place to go. You can you can do it socially, like you said. It's that I think that's the big attraction for a lot of people. And, uh, you know, the fact that it's it's like you said, it's kind of a religion. I'd say probably the you know I'm just kind of guessing here, but I'd say probably the majority of people that hunt in Texas they hunt that first weekend or two and that's it. 
And but but it's huge. You know, if, if that gets compromised in any way, if they don't get to do that, it's it's like what you know, what are we gonna do now? <laughs> kind of thing. So um it's it's one of the most important weekends of the year for, for most sportsmen. Yeah, I mean I think that's true in every dub state. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, everybody. I'd like to take this time to thank Filson for sponsoring the Hunt Gather Talk podcast. As you may know, I wear their gear in the field all the time. I love their vests. I love their outerwear. Their tin cloth jacket is awesome. And as upland game bird seasons are approaching, definitely take a look at their collection of gear. A lot of it is new. A lot of it has been around for decades, and all of it is super, super high quality. If you are in the market for something to wear on your upland hunt this fall, Absolutely check out Filson. I can totally vouch for them from personal experience. Filson was founded in Seattle in 1897 when they started outfitting prospectors for the Klondike Gold Rush. And ever since then, they've been committed to creating best-in-class gear for the world's toughest people in the most unforgiving conditions. So let's talk a bit about the biology. So we can start this, this part of the conversation by saying that there is no game bird that has that gets shot as much as a dove let's for, for that's in an artful way of putting it but they shoot more doves than any other game bird and so that also means that there are more doves than any other game bird so owen tell me a little bit about first the morning dove and then let's talk a little bit about the eurasians and and white wings in terms of how are they the same and how are they different yeah um so the morning dove is a very interesting species uh it's one of the most ubiquitous birds in North America. Uh, they breed everywhere from Canada into Mexico and even even further south. Uh, so they're they're basically found everywhere. Uh, they're kind of the epitome of generalists as far as birds go. They'll they'll nest on the ground. They'll nest in pine trees. They'll nest on your back porch. Um, they'll nest multiple clutches a year. So they're they're really good at at pulling off multiple clutches and and kind of uh, replenishing the population. They feed on seeds, basically, and nothing else. Um, so they're very generalist as far as their forage goes. Uh, they'll they'll eat cereal grains, they'll eat grass seeds, they'll they'll eat forbs, uh, you know, and other annual annual weeds and things like that. And what's interesting is that if you go back in time, they think when the passenger pigeon was around, uh, which which that's a whole another subject unto itself. Uh, thinking about a bird that may have numbered in the billions uh, and possibly made up. You know, 25% of the of the bird life in North America. Uh, when they were still around, morning doves were were not thought to be that plentiful. Uh, and as Europeans colonized the U.S. and marched westward, and uh, you know, with the advent of agriculture and the planting of windrows, and uh, you know, basically we created the perfect morning dove habitat. And I think that's why we have so many around uh, these days. Which I think the current estimate uh, off the top of my head is somewhere like 250 to 300 million in the U.S. So, so a lot. <laughs> I have seen places like Arizona where doves are the dominant bird. Like there's more doves than any other uh, species of bird just around. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Do- doves are, are basically a subtropical species. So uh, they do very, very well in, in southern climates in the U.S. and of course through Mexico and Central America and, and in South America as well. And that's that's why you get those those stories about Argentina as well. That's where they're from. So how are they different from the white wing? So the white wing, uh, historically, the northern extent of their range uh, came up just into the southern U.S., you know, just into four counties in South Texas, just across the border into New Mexico and Arizona. 
they're a little bit bigger bird. They're a little bit more gregarious. Uh, in a lot of places, they're colonial nesters, so they nest in these big, dense groups, whereas morning doves typically nest on their own. They're more of a of a dry land bird, a desert bird. Uh, they're able to tolerate those conditions a lot better than morning doves. Uh, they're a little bit bigger, and and in Texas at least, over the past 30 or 40 years, well, they've expanded range-wide uh, to the north, but in, in and across, I guess, where their, their range has expanded, they've become primarily urban. I know, at least for us, we estimate that about 80% of the white-winged population, which is now found in just about every county in Texas, um, that we think about 80% of them are associated with urban and suburban areas. So um, hmm. things are changing rapidly in our state with that species. That's really interesting. I mean, I've seen them in Austin. I know that. And that's really interesting because we should – so let's just segue right into that. Like, So in many places, that's the Eurasian that's become the urban and suburban bird. Are they – how is that working out with the white wings? <laughs> well, we've got Eurasians too. Um, I think the first – record of Eurasians coming to Texas, the first sighting was 96. Uh, and of course, now we've got them, we've got them everywhere. And I think they're found throughout the U.S., uh, like from Alaska to Panama, basically through North America. The, st- the few studies that we've we've seen in Texas and around Texas, have they, there's not a whole lot of competition. There is some competition, you know, at an individual level, like some of these birds get aggressive around feed or maybe for nesting sites. But uh, at the population level, there really doesn't seem to be any conflict there. You know, one of the biggest concerns for me is disease transmission because Eurasians do carry some disease, diseases that are a little bit more prevalent in, in them than they are in the native species. But really, we haven't seen much of, a, of an issue, you know, up to this point. That's weird. I mean, because they're, you know, you'd, you'd figure that in the urban or suburban environment, you're going to have three columbids. You're going to have an actual pigeon, and then you're going to have the Eurasian, and then with the white wings, and then morning doves. So, yep. what's interesting is so four birds and the very, very closely related, all living in, in side by side. So, that suggests that they op- occupy either slightly different niches or that they, they, there's just enough food and, and place for them to live around for them to coexist. Yeah, I, and I think that's the key uh, is just food and habitat is not that limiting for for species that can nest just about anywhere and, you know, have plenty of backyard feeders, have agriculture fields and, and native range pastures and stuff just outside of town. Uh, it, it doesn't seem to be a factor. They, you know, I don't know what the carrying capacity would be uh, in, in Texas for these species, but I, I don't think we're there yet. Is there uh, – does, does one species – and we can talk about all of the different ones at this point. I know we can even throw in common pigeons. Uh, is there is there a diet difference to them? I, I've read some studies where white wings prefer more native desert forage than agriculture, but but it sounds like that probably has changed. Well, yeah. Historically, they, they fed uh, – so, so uh, morning doves will feed on hard-coated seeds, usually small seeds like grass seeds, things like that. Uh, white wings are able, and Eurasians too, are able to um, consume, you know, whole kernels of corn and whole sunflower seeds, and you know, much bigger forage. And historically, white wings would feed on on fruits and mast of uh, the riparian forests in South Texas, so berries and and nuts and things like that. And I think at at this point, I think they'll feed on just about any seed they can get. Um, but you do often find them, you know, they'll They'll be eating any kind of fruit or any any kind of small fruit or any kind of small nut that they can find on trees and backyards. There's a lot of ornamental plants and uh, exotic species that people plant in their backyards that that those doves will feed on too. So 
they're able to find food. And I think in the cities, you know, it's year round. They have year round food and water. And what we've seen is outside of that historical range in the Rio, the lower Rio Grande Valley of Texas, all these urban birds seem to be, mo- for the most part, non-migratory, whereas the hmm. historical population, they were very migratory. So it sounds like the white wings are more fruit eaters than the other dove species? Yeah, yeah. You know, and of course, we're talking about the northern extent of their range. The white wings extend all the way down through Mexico and Central America. There's a lot of, of, of fruit-bearing plants down there. Uh, of course, they rely heavily on cactus in, in Arizona. Right, so Saguaros. Yeah, Saguaros. So, um, so yeah, they're able to, you know, they're a tropical species, subtropical species, and, and that's kind of what they feed on. And another difference is morning doves will feed on the ground. They will not feed they will not perch and feed, whereas white wings prefer to perch and feed. So a lot of times you see them when people plant sunflowers for, for dove fields, you'll see these white wings come in and land on the sunflower head. And the whole thing is kind of bent over and they're just hanging on for dear life, trying to eat as many seeds as they can before they fall off. <laughs> um, so it's, it's that's another difference that you can you can see pretty readily. Now, there's that the, – the, I alluded to it before. There's the white-tipped dove, uh, again, in those four counties in the southern part of Texas – What's the story on that one? Because I, I had the opportunity to hunt them uh, when I was down in those counties hunting chachalacas. Uh, God, it seems like a, forever ago. I guess it was only this January, though. And it's a it's a big dove, and it's very rosy rosy breast on it. But and it and, and it seems to hang out on the ground more. Yeah, they're they're really beautiful birds, and even a lot of Texans don't really know. I, I you know I bet you could go out and pick ten hunters, and I bet nine of them don't even know what they look like. Um, and they're, they're typically found just along the border in South Texas. Uh, again, it's the, you know, Texas is the Northern extent of their range, but you're absolutely right. They're a ground dove. Uh, they prefer being in thick brush. Uh, they don't come out in the open a lot. They don't, uh, they don't form up in big flocks or anything like that. So they're not really, uh, their behavior just isn't really conducive to, to hunting necessarily in the, in the traditional style of dove hunting out in the open. Um, and so you kind of have to go after them, you know, a, You'll find them every once in a while flying over. People get them on a pass shot. I think that's probably how the majority of them are harvested. But um, if you really want to go after them, you better put on your thick pants and, and shirt and, and start crawling through the brush and try to find them. Yeah, that's exactly how because we were looking for chachalacas. And uh, and they're like, hey, there's uh, there's white-tipped dove. Get it. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I actually see most of the white-tipped doves I see are, you know, from a deer blind Uh they come out they're running around with the quail um ah. they're very much yeah they, they they're really good at running uh whereas you know some of the other dove species look like they can barely walk oh i know well <laughs> i mean we'll get to that later but the, from a culinary perspective it makes those legs a little tiny delicious morsel <laughs> so let's go back to eurasians for a bit so jorge you said that you hunt them a lot and let's i'll preface it for everybody so, I mean, the three of us know, but if you're listening to this, chances are you may or may not know that Eurasian doves are A, not from here, B, they're a newcomer on the scene. So, like you said, Owen, before, 96 is the first recorded hunting of them. And they, I guess they all came from, like, the Florida Keys or somebody somebody decided to let them out down in the South Florida, and they've expanded from there. But there's no season and no limit on them in virtually every place that they live. And there's even some places where you can hunt Eurasians, but not morning doves, because they're they're viewed as this invader that has very rapidly taken over a lot of different habitats in the United States. And I'd love to hear from you, sort of like, okay, if if I'm if if a guy wanted to hunt Eurasians, give me a give me a primer, Jorge. Sure. Yeah. So I 
you know, again, the uh, as as you kind of touched on, you know, they've uh, spread out from. It, and it really depends, you know, what what story you hear. But the the most popular story is that they were released somewhere in the Bahamas and reached Florida, you know, sh- shortly thereafter, and have spread since since then. And and I think. Um, around the late 90s and early 2000s is when they they landed here in in the uh and you know the good old uh, uh, california rather and um yeah it's you know you, we see a lot of them now i mean it's it's something that you know i've i've you know especially where i live i live uh i live in you know southern california the most the northernmost most tip of southern california and you know we we see a lot of them and you know out out here in town and you know around you know a lot of the agriculture fields out here and you know we see a lot of them i mean it's just it's it's you know a bird that you know again you know it's it's something that i've taken a lot more notice of since i've i've been you know started started to hunt them not that long ago and you know we find them around you know the edges of of uh you know, ranches and, and agriculture fields out here is primarily where we're finding them. And, uh, you know, they're hogs, you know, as, as, uh, you know, was put earlier is, you know, they, they, these things are swallowing almonds and, and pistachios whole, you know, when we're, you know, cleaning them out and it's, you know, it's a, it's really different than a, than a morning dove, that's for sure. So how, okay. So I'm out there hunting and how do you tell on the wing a Eurasian versus uh, a morning dove? For myself, uh, you know, again, you know, hunting them as long as I've hunted them is not not very long, but just you know, there's so many of them that you know you start you start to notice you know the difference the the difference between a morning dove and and the Eurasian. The Eurasians are are typically pretty large, so they're a bit larger than than a morning dove. I would say you know maybe about a third size bigger than a morning dove and uh they tend to be more of a buff gray rather than you know the pink the pinkish browns that the morning dove are and they're, they're the morning dove tend to be a lot more agile in the air as well and i was uh, just gonna say that yeah your asians are like uh, i'm just gonna fly over here yeah they're 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 a bit they're a <laughs> bit of a bumbling fool in the air but you know don't 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 let that you know they, they're they're also a challenger bird as well. I mean, just you know, shooting shooting shot at these guys, you know, with you know, living out here in Southern California, and I'm you know, I'm sure there's other states that have this problem, but you know, we we uh, recently uh, lead lead is illegal out here, so we have to we have to use non toxic uh, versions of of shot now, and then you're using uh, you know number seven if you're using num- number seven steels out here on your Asians, that stuff just bounces off sometimes, so they're a bit of a tank. Oh, I don't know about that. Like I, <laughs> I have killed several flocks of Eurasians with numbers with steel number sevens. I'll tell you who who does laugh at them though are pigeons. Oh yeah, that for sure. <laughs> Is that all you got? I'm just gonna go over here and eat your almonds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I mean, it, it it could just be my my lousy shooting them, but you know, I, I I tend to see you know they they just fly through some of the still shots sometimes and. Yeah, we're we're finding them out here and, and and just flocks and flocks of you know just these these huge flocks out here and a lot of the agriculture areas out here in Southern California, and you know they're you find them in the backyards and of you know the the city out here and yeah it's it's you see a lot of them. So my friend Jonathan O'Dell, who's a he's a small game biologist in Arizona, and also a big dove hunter, he has made the point that. You will never see a Eurasian collar dove more than a quarter mile away from a structure, and it's that's a really great way to to add to your identification because 
you know, I mean, there's no season or limit on your Asians, so you can shoot mm-hmm. them all year long. But you don't want to shoot, uh, you know, a white wing or a, or a morning dove if you're hunting your Asians in July, you know. So one of the, you know, you're talking about the buff color is super important because once you see, you know, a dozen or so, you're like, oh, yeah, that's it's a very different color. They fly tend to fly straight-ish. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're bigger. And if they're flying in a straight line, look for that collar. I mean, they're called Eurasian collar doves, and they've got this black collar on the back of their neck. It's almost like they're wearing a neck gaiter in reverse. And so that's that's another identifying mark. And then the, the fact that they're just not going to be in the wilderness. Like, you can see morning doves anywhere. I've seen them on the tops of mountains in the Sierra. You'll never see a Eurasian there. Yeah, it's it's absolutely true. Um even where they, you know, they colonized Europe just like they colonized North America uh, a few hundred years ago, and that's exactly what they did there. They're they're associated with human habitation, you know, just like they are here. They're found at rural farmhouses in in France or whatever, just like they are in in rural farmhouses here. So uh, Odell makes a good point for sure. There's another really fun way to to determine if it's a morning dove or a or a Eurasian. I watch a lot of nature shows, and I spend a lot of time in the Pacific Ocean fishing. A Eurasian collar dove sounds exactly like a merbird or a dying <laughs> penguin. It's like, <laughs> it <has> like <laughs> you know, that's spot on. It has none fun. of this, none, none of this coo coo, or you know, you know, it does not sound like a dove. It's like this weird, what the hell is that? <laughs> It, it has that sound of someone instead of like blowing out a kazoo, a, a kazoo, but they're like blowing, you know, they're sucking in air through a kazoo, basically, is how I kind of put it. I like to like I liken them to uh, to Marge Simpson's sister Selma Bouvier. Exactly. Oh, Homer. <laughs> and they're talky too. Like you'll hear them. Like they're. It, it, you know, you'll hear them fly. They they talk when they're flying, or at least it seems like they talk when they're flying. I I, I have a hard time sitting around and and you know waiting. Up, you know, when it comes to pass shooting, that is, I have a really hard time just you know sitting still. And and that's probably just you know the the quail hunter in me because I you know I primarily hunt quail. So you know w- what I do is I I you know I sit around and I kind of listen for them in, in in the trees. And you know what I'll do is you know if I, I feel like there's a good amount in a particular tree I'll, I'll i'll kind of make a beeline out there and uh i'll you know just kind of follow the tree line or follow the lines you know they they tend to hang out on a lot of uh uh telephone lines out here so what i'll do is i'll you know make my way toward them and you know once they flush then you know i, I, I tended to take my my jump shots I, I i prefer to do it that way than just sit around to be honest yeah i guess i mean unless you see a a, a path and this is sort of segues mm-hmm. into the hunting part where uh a dove hunt is not really what you think it is. So the hunter in a dove hunt is the person or persons who have discovered the place that they fly. So the hunting part is all scouting. It's like figuring out patterning a deer. Mm-hmm. And and so that's the hunt. Like is to fit, okay, they fly this line, they're going to this field, this is their roost tree, this is their water, and and to kind of triangulate where a good spot to sit under a tree or wherever it would be. That's the hunt. That's the, the, the non-shooting portion of a, of a dove hunt. And what you're, what you invite your friend to is just a dove shoot because he's already done the hard work for you. Yeah, absolutely. I would say there's a lot of truth, <laughs> a lot of truth to that. Um, you know, once, once those, you know, once you establish where they're at, you know, they're pretty, 
Dove, I think Dove in general are pretty um, cons- c- consistent when it comes to, you know, the paths that they take and then the areas that they feed and, and uh, you know, eat in. So that, that doesn't tend to change a lot. So, you know, once, once you dial down on an area or if you have someone that dials down on an area and they take you out, I mean, it's, it's pretty – it's you know from for mo- most most cases you know you're gonna find the birds there all the time so yeah I would agree with that yeah yeah um yeah I think so I I think like you said it's it's ninety percent scouting and and maybe ten percent where you where you sit in the field to intercept those birds as they come in I always tell people to you know doves need food shelter and water so if you can find those three things one of those three things that they're gonna they're gonna hit uh you you'll probably be pretty successful. I think there's another piece to this that everybody in the kind of the middle of the country has to deal with. And, and I, that includes me in Sacramento because you live in Ventura, right, Jorge? I live in Ventura County. I, I live in Santa Paula uh, specifically. Yeah. So you're you're actually in SoCal and mm-hmm. I'm not. And a great funny little story. So last year was last year it was your last year, or the year before time is I'm caught between the time space continuum these days. Um, I was out in. Utah and it was September and it was perfect dove habitat perfect there was forbs everywhere there was small grain there was a river well a little creek you know there were dead trees it was just I mean you couldn't you couldn't draw up better dove habitat on a video game but it was late September and there were no doves there was actually there was one. Holly got one, and but there should have been thousands of doves in this thing. But what had happened was when we talked to the guy later who owned the land, so like, oh yeah, they'd already had three frosts. So they this uh, sort of a caveat to that is you know yeah they're always they're gonna fly from point A to point B or point C when they're just hanging out and being there, but a these birds can fly like crazy. So a little side note, Holly used to band doves for state of California and side to note to the side note, there's one still alive and she hasn't done it in three years. So we've got a three-year-old, at least a three-year-old male dove hanging out in our backyard still, which is pretty cool uh, to see the banded guy. But one of her banded doves, she banded it like, I don't know, like on a Tuesday. And then like two days later, it was recaptured in, in uh, Palm Springs, which. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's like 300 miles south of mm. here. So they're really sensitive to cold. And I don't really understand what cold is. Maybe you do, Owen, but it's like they, they're they out of here. And, you know, they're, it's, it's a coin flip if you're going to have a good opening weekend in Sacramento. Yeah, it's interesting. They uh, Historically, morning doves were not really found in the northern half of the U.S., Again, you know, kind of the changes in land use over the time as, as people colonized North America uh, contributed to that. But there's you go back, you know, 150 years and there's records of them saying, hey, we didn't used to see morning doves in Minnesota and all these other states and, you know, now in Canada. So um, they're not again, most of these doves are, are subtropical birds and and they're also very migratory. Like you said, they can fly. Um, we've got band returns from from birds banded in Texas that are, you know, down in Nicaragua, southern Mexico, places like that. So uh, they can fly long distances. They're very good at it. And and when they catch those fronts, they're gone, man. Um, and what's a little side note uh, on this is we I have several pictures of, of people who have found birds that did not leave fast enough 
who got caught in a in a cold front who are missing toes from frostbite. Oh wow. Yeah, so they're pretty susceptible to it. I don't think they, you know, their their body they're they're not built for the cold at all. So uh, they don't stick around once the starts drop the temperatures start dropping. But the Eurasians do. Oh yeah, oh yeah. They're they're found. Uh, I I read this a while back in Europe. They're found. Well, of course they're they're seen in Alaska now, but in Europe they're found all the way up to the Arctic Circle. Hmm. Wow. So I'll, I mean, the first time I encountered a cold weather dove like that. I was up on the Oregon border hunting ducks in like December and we were in the, the little town of Tule Lake and we got back from a duck hunt and there was that, ah! like, what the <laughs> hell? Why is there a, a dove and it's like zero out? <laughs> there they were. You know, what's also interesting about some of the white wing uh, expansion is that there are documented records of white wings in Canada. You know, I don't wow. think they're breeding up there. I think they're just kind of like lost birds, but the fact that they're going that far north, you know, is maybe an exploratory migratory flight. I don't know. It's 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 pretty incredible. Hmm. I mean, from a hunting perspective, just uh, I want to I want to get into the shooting in a second. But from a hunting perspective, we talked about idea of, of Eurasians. Like I think the morning dove is kind of your your default. They that the very distinctive whistling noise that you hear when white wings fly or when morning doves fly. That's the sound of their wingtips hitting each other. With a white wing, if you're in white wing country, which would be deep Southern California, Arizona, New Mexico, Texas, and such, you can really see that white band across the wing as they're flying. It's very distinctive, at least to my eye. Yeah, absolutely. And they're they're a bigger bird and kind of like how uh, – I'm glad to hear somebody else say that Eurasians fly, quote-unquote, straight. Uh, because when people ask me what's the difference in white wings and morning doves in flight, I will say morning doves are sharp and fast. Uh, you know, they have sharp wingtips and sharp tails, and they're very agile and fast. And so white wings tend to fly a lot like Eurasians. They're a chunkier bird, and they kind of catch a straight line and, and just kind of go. Um, and a lot of times, you know, if they're not in big groups, you'll see white wings almost almost like lazily flying. It's like they, they're putting as minimal effort as possible <laughs> into kind of floating along in front of you. And those are usually the shots I miss. Are the ones where they're just kind of sitting out there, but um, it's but yeah, a gimme, Owen. It's a gimme you got. Oh <laughs> man! Exactly. <laughs> There's the most pressure on those shots, though. <laughs> well, it's the same thing as like a pointed bird, right? Uh-huh. So if you've got a pointed bird and the dog's like queuing it up for you, I have stage fright more often than not. And then when uh-huh. a bird flushes wild, like up, oh, you're gone. I'd like to take a moment to thank Hunt to Eat for sponsoring the Hunt Gather Talk podcast. Hunt to Eat is a casual hunting and angling apparel company based on community, real food, and conservation. Head over to hunttoeat.com and check out the Hank Shaw t-shirt collection. You'll also find wild game recipes, hats, and other kinds of gear, including aprons with the Hunter, Angler, Gardener, Cook logo on them. If you use the code HANKSHAW at checkout, you will get 10% off your order. Thanks again to Hunt to Eat, and back to the podcast. So let's talk about shooting. So Jorge, you talked about a massive amount of shells. I think I think the national average is seven shells per bird. Um, I've heard different numbers on that, but that seems like an awful lot. Um, Holly and I will compete for uh, how many shells per bird that we'll we'll get uh, for a limit. And I think my I think my all time record is one and a half. And Holly's is either slightly better or similar. And That's pretty good. Yeah, it's really good. I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you my trick for that for that and after you guys I want to hear you guys like shooting tips for for doves. Jorge, go. 
Yeah, I think, you know, it, it, it comes down to practice. You know, there's, you know, obviously there's nothing like practicing on, a, you know, a real live wild bird. Um, but, you know, it's just it's familiarizing yourself with, you know, the uh, the tools that you have and, you know, just shooting distances, I would say, is is probably, you know, comes really close behind that. It's just, you know, judging uh, fast moving, small you know, feathered object, you know, go, you know, going at the light, you know, light, light speed sound, you know, the faster than sound, you know, and that's <laughs> obviously an exaggeration, but, you know, it, it makes me feel better when I, when I do tend to miss, you know, those shots. But yeah, I would just say, you know, practice and, and just, you know, get, get used to you know, judging distance and, and leading a bird rather than, you know, shooting, shooting directly at it, you know, putting the bead right over it is, you know, probably the biggest mistake. Yeah, I, I always tell people, um, if you're going to miss the bird, miss in front of it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Have you guys ever seen the uh, the, the dove that does the 180 when, you're, when you take the first shot at it? Yeah, it's like a glitch in the Matrix. They <laughs> it totally is. <laughs> <laughs> I had one do that. Like, I took a shot. It came off a tree line. Like, I'm standing at a tree line, and it's coming into the field. And I took a shot and missed, and the thing was like, Bzz! where was it? It just 180 degrees gone. Now that's a morning duck trick. Uh-huh. Yep. Yep. And I, you know, I think the biggest mistake that most people make is uh, not bringing them in close. Like you said, I, I'm not. I, I tend to camouflage. You know, I'm not crazy camo. I'm not full camo or anything. But I tend to hide in the shade. I, you know, try to blend in. And I want those birds in close. And I have a more open choke pattern than most people do. And you know, that tends to to work for me. Um, if you're sitting out there in your in your yellow tank top and your shorts, and and you can hit them with that modified choke at, at 40 or 50 yards, you know, when they're zooming by, yeah, more power to you. But um, if you don't want to waste as many shells and, and you want to come out with a limit, to me, uh, I tend to recommend people try to try to bring them in close and, and open up your shot pattern a little bit more, and you tend to be more successful that way. Yeah, I think that's a mistake that a lot of people go into dove dove hunting. You know, they're thinking they're going to make you know. A, hundred yard a hundred yard shot and you know they have to be you know choked up extra full turkey tur- <laughs> turkey choked to you know to get out and shoot these guys and oh my uh, god Can yeah you imagine just, shooting a 20 <laughs> yard dove with a full choke I, well yeah that's that, that wouldn't be pretty so yeah i i would agree you know just just getting them in a lot a lot closer you know um uh, you know, Owen, Owen made a great point is, you know, just sitting under, you know, shade, you know, that tends to help even if you're not wearing camouflage and, you know, uh, a, a good method of getting in, getting doves to come in closer is, you know, obviously decoys. And I'm not sure if you guys utilize decoys, but, you know, those things are a godsend. Yeah, I wanted to talk about decoys. So then thanks for the segue. I mean, uh, we like we like the mojo doves. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if it's not fiendishly hot out, which is only really in the mornings um the you you can put the 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 dead doves in and among the decoy and and that helps as well but once it gets hot the ants start showing up and for some reason ants want to eat dead doves like i don't understand it like there's it's 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 like bears and honey if you don't protect your strap from from random ants you're gonna have ants all over your dead doves and it's the weirdest thing but i've seen this in several states Absolutely true, especially, uh, you know, we have fire ants here that just, it's like within seconds almost, you know, that bird hits the ground and it's covered. Weird. I wonder if there's like a scent or like, it's, it's just weird. Yeah. You know, doves are kind of like the, the rabbits of the bird world. They're just, they, they almost like fall apart. 
I feel I feel like uh, you know, and so I think it's easier for a lot of a lot of things to eat them. And I, you know, I don't know. I, ants are ants are pretty good at jumping on stuff like that. And I don't know. I don't know. That's interesting. They are, in fact, the krill of the of the sky. Like, yeah. <laughs> Like, I mean, and they also, I mean, this is a good thing about, about, and I find, I find white wings die pretty easy too, but morning doves, I mean, if you think hard at them, they die. (laughs) Like, it's nothing like a pigeon. Like, I'm sorry. Like, you can hit pigeons with like lead fours and they're like, ha, 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 ha. They shake it off and scratch their belly and fly away. Right? (laughs) That said, I mean, I mean, I don't. I, I do love, love, love hunting um, Eurasians and, and common pigeons. I actually love hunting fantailed pigeons, but that's a different story. Mm-hmm. Um, but but a, a pigeon shoot, and this is actually kind of a good tip too, is is if you live in an agricultural area, try to make the acquaintance of dairy farmers because both pigeons and Eurasians deeply love to hang around dairy barns, and they eat the cattle feed. And there, that it can be a really good place to shoot. And I bet you do this too, Jorge. I bet you try to shoot some Eurasians in August or so as a tune-up for the morning dove season. That's because because that's what we do up here. Yeah, that's that's typically you know what we do. You know the you know again to kind of you know just it it keeps you frosty. You know if you're able to hunt, especially year long. You know with with Eurasian dove, you know they just give you that opportunity to to you know just you know stay on your toes you know throughout the year so you know we we tend to hunt them you know at the end of the quail season and maybe a couple of months you know like around march april and then you know we tune up like around august obviously so yeah you know we're we're finding them in a lot of areas like uh like the dairies as you mentioned and they they tend to you know to go for a lot of that feed and obviously that overlaps with a lot of the pigeons out here but yeah they they present a great opportunity uh just because you know they're you could freely hunt them year long out here in california and there's there's no limits do you find guess let's touch one more bit on the decoys before we move on but mm-hmm. is there anything about a decoy like so mojo decoys and then static decoys are both useful is there anything beyond just like stick them out in front of you that you've noticed that makes a difference? Uh, you know, just finding common areas where they're, you know, they're picking up grit, you know, or, or just feeding, you know, I, I tend to focus on, you know, the flyways and just kind of, you know, put them in where I know they're going to, you know, either land or, or fly by. But um, yeah, you know, we're, we're using the, the, you know, just the static decoys and, you know, the mojos are a godsend. And then it's, there's, there's unfortunately not a, a, a Eurasian specific a decoy out there yet but um you know they the morning dove decoys tend to work pretty pretty well with them as well well you can paint a little black spot on the back of the neck yeah you can always do that too (laughs) (laughs) yeah i i I think you know i've i've used the static decoys like on uh the edge of a of a pool of water you know a tank or pond Mm -hmm. um to kind of act like they're they're watering there and i i tend to have a lot of success putting them you know in a nearby dead tree or snag or something where they're very visible Mm. And kind of putting like six or a dozen over there, you know, 20 or 30 yards away from me. Because uh, at least here, you know, after the first weekend or two, the birds know what mojos look like and they're not going to come in because um, everybody puts them out. Right. So tend to, you know, if you take a little more of a subdued approach and kind of put some static decoys out around you, I, I find personally that that really works for me. Interesting. So, yeah, so they get they get like ducks. Yep. Hmm. Yeah, exactly. It got, I, you know, I don't know if that's. 
you know, I, I've seen people uh, who tend to put out five, six, ten, a dozen mojos out in a field in front of them, which is way overkill. And, Absolutely. you know, it works for <laughs> it works for a day. But after that, man, you know, like everything that came in got shot at and and they pretty quickly recognize that that's that doesn't look right. <laughs> I call that array the Cajun Air Force. <laughs> <laughs> So let's talk dogs for a second. So dog, this is this is one of the cool things that I like about dove hunting is you don't need a dog because as long as you make a beeline, and this is actually a good pro tip as well, like when you shoot a dove and it hits the ground, don't take your eyes off it. Walk straight to it mm-hmm. because they look exactly like the bottom. Like they look just like the ground and, and you, kn- you don't want to lose your bird. And they can get surprisingly lost really easily on the ground. So I always find like shoot that bird follow it to the ground and walk tra- right to the spot. And as soon as you spot it or, or, you know, know where it is, then if you, another bird flies around, you can shoot that one. But it's as without a dog, that is the one limiting factor is that, you know, you don't want to lose your bird. So Jorge, you don't hunt with a dog either, but I tend to find that dogs don't really like to pick them up because the feathers fall off. But uh, what has your experience been? Oh, uh, so I had a I had a lab uh, who was a big waterfowl dog and would not pick up a dove after the first one or two. You know, he would pick them up, bring them back, and then spit the feathers out and be like, "I'm done. I'm not <laughs> picking up another dove." Um, but that actually the last my dog passed away a few years ago. The last hunt I ever took him on was a dove hunt, uh, and I took him just to get him out of the house. You know, he was he was like 11 and a half years old, and cool story. We I ended up meeting two of my buddies who had been hunting for about an hour already in the field and before i ever shot a bird my, I, my dog would just went out and was kind of exploring through the field and he brought back uh somewhere around nine or ten birds that had been wounded that they hadn't found because they didn't have a dog oh. and so uh yeah it was, it was pretty cool I, I ended up with a limit you know shooting like five birds there you go <laughs> it's, a, it's economical yeah it shows you the value of a, of a dog with a, a good nose though have you ever hunted doves with dogs jorge um, yeah, so I've ha- I've had the opportunity to to go out with a few people and hunt and hunt with their dogs, and you know, obviously a dog is a you know it would be a, a great tool, and you know, you don't necessarily have to you know leave the leave the confines of your you know your secluded little area under a tree. Um, but yeah, I've, I've had the opportunity. Um, I you know I, I think it's a you know an awesome thing you know to have a dog along, especially you know just just for retrieving, not necessarily locating, you know, because obviously you know that's not what you're primarily using a dog for when you go out. Uh, dove hunting i actually prefer a dog that that locates and doesn't retrieve (laughs) (laughs) i mean but then i'm a cook right so it's like Uh i my perfect my perfect dog in the world would be the dog that finds the bird and goes like it's right here boss okay cool i'll pick it up (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean that's the that is a really interesting thing that i have found with with not so much set piece dove hunting like we've been talking about in brownsville Mm -hmm. and yuma but that kind of like yeah we're just gonna go out and see if we can shoot some doves kind of thing where if you have a dog that can help you find a down bird, that opens up a whole set of habitats and environments that you now can hunt in. Because if a dove falls into a little bit thicker brush, that dog is going to find it where you may not. Yeah, and it, and it also, you know, hunting with a dog, you know, gives you that opportunity not to, you know, you, you don't necessarily have to keep your eye on that particular bird that's down. It gives you more opportunities to shoot. And, and in a lot of cases, um, you know, as you know, myself, and I'm sure you, know, you might find this true as well, but, you know, you downing a bird, um, you know, if, if you're going to be an ethical, an ethical hunter, at least for myself, you know, I, 
I need to retrieve that bird before I shoot anything else, unless I absolutely 100% know where it's at. And, you know, I, I, that, you know, obviously I don't always get you no know, opportunities to shoot other birds until I actually retrieve that. So I, I think of there's, you know, a big takeaway from that is, you know, having a dog is, you know, it gives you more opportunities to shoot, I think. So one trick that we have used in the past, and we talked about this in the snipe hunt is mm-hmm. you drop your hat on the, on the bird and then, then you can look up and, and shoot the next bird. Well, let's talk about once you have a uh, a mess of doves. To start with, I'm going to say that I don't always pluck all of my birds. Actually, that's not true. I pluck every dove I, I hunt, except mm-hmm. I don't always keep them whole. Um, and I pluck doves because they are by far the easiest bird on the planet to to pluck. I mean, I can pluck a dove Absolutely. in 90 seconds. And so everybody out there is like, oh, I just brushed my doves. I'm like, for the love of God, just give it a go. It's not going to take you that long. You can do it while drinking a beer. And the, the you get two bonuses. One, you can cook your doves whole, which is amazing. And we'll get into that in a second. But two, even if you're making poppers, and we, I want to talk about poppers in a second. Even if you're making poppers, you get the whole rest of that bird, which makes the best stock or broth to cook grits in or rice or make it you know as a soup broth or whatever whatever i mean and and even if you're just using the breast at the moment you get this extra bit that has a lot of flavor and you you spent an extra 90 seconds for it maybe so it's it's really worth it and and before i, I can answer this question that some of you listening out there are thinking well, well i shoot a lot of does yeah you know what so do i you know i mean <laughs> i shoot a lot of i mean between me and holly we've shot limits you know, three days, four days, five days in a row, and we're barbecuing them every night, and it's just not that big a deal. So that's my little soapbox. But um, another little bit of tidbit before we, I don't, then I want to hear you guys talk about poppers because it's there's something about doves and poppers that are just natural. <laughs> the average plucked, ready to go morning dove is about two and a half ounces. The average plucked. White wing dove is almost four, and the average plucked Eurasian is a bit over four, so somewhere between four and five. So that's I've, I've, I weigh them a lot just to get these kind of this kind of data, and it's just kind of interesting <laughs> to sort of random random note. So poppers, I used to hate hate <laughs> hate hate dove poppers. I used to think it was stupid and 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 a waste and blah blah blah. And then I came around, and I came around. Not because I love cream cheese. I actually don't like cream cheese. Um, I came around because a dove popper is to Labor Day what a turkey is to Thanksgiving. It is a symbolic food. It is a food that has more cultural weight than what it is on any other day. So I fully endorse the making of whatever popper makes you happy on Labor Day weekend. And then after that, cook it any number of the millions of other ways that I've provided on the website. <laughs> but poppers are, are, there's different pieces to poppers. So I want to hear a, if you guys make them and B how you make them. Uh, yeah, I think, I think dove poppers are like the official uh, labor day food, uh, you know, opening weekend food anyway. And I, for me, I, and I think probably just about everybody in Texas does it this way is jalapeno cream cheese, Dove breast and wrapped in bacon. Throw it on a mesquite-fired grill, and that's 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 all you need. Cold beer, 
perfect. Do you? Does it matter what kind of bacon? Does it matter? You know, do do you do you do the soak in Italian dressing on the dub breast? I don't. I personally, um, doves are are one of my favorite favorite birds to eat. You know, just the flavor of a dove is something I really enjoy. So I don't I don't do any kind of marinating, anything like that. Um, you know, it's just it's just straight wrapping in bacon and and slice of jalapeno and cream cheese and throw it on the grill. Maybe a little salt and pepper. When I was in college, it was the cheapest bacon I could get. Uh, now I, I spring for the good stuff, you know, a little bit extra flavor. See, um, I actually disagree on that one. I love bacon more than the next guy, but I think with a popper, you want the cheapest, thinnest, the, the thinnest bacon that you can, like the real bargain basement stuff, because mm-hmm. the only reason it is there is it gives you a little smoky flavor. It holds everything together. But if you get the really nice bacon, I find it's like bacon with some other stuff. Whereas if right. it's, it's cheap, it's, crappy bacon, you can actually taste the dove. It can overpower it, yeah. I, I, with the better stuff, I tend to use less bacon. Like I'll cut it in cut a it third out. or a half, ah. so it's like not a full wrap. Um, whereas the cheap stuff, you can almost like it's almost stretchy. You know, the, the super cheap thin stuff, <laughs> it you can like wrap stretchy. it four or five times around. Uh, but yeah. How about you, Ari? Yeah, it's it's pretty similar for myself as well. Um, uh, you know, the I- interesting thing is, um, my wife and my daughter. Um, you know, my my wife doesn't you know come from a you know her her dad never hunted. You know, she's never been she was never exposed to hunting until I came along, and it, it's it's been an uphill battle like just trying to get my family to to enjoy a little bit of a uh, you know game meat and um I, I i think the jalapeno poppers you know is just you know one of those one of those things that um you know it just it sounds inviting it sounds it doesn't sound like super terrifying for someone that you know has never eaten game meat to you know sit down and you know, at least try and you know that, that tends to be the way that i prepare it out here for for my family and for myself and um uh, the way that I kind of prepare it is, um, I, I know obviously I use the jalapeno and the cream cheese and, and the bacon, um, but I, I tend to dab the uh, the bits of uh, breast meat and a little bit of olive oil, and I sprinkle a little bit of um, paprika on it, and you know I'll, I'll do uh, what Owen does, and I'll cut the uh, the premium bacon in half, and I'll you know I'll wrap them up with a little toothpick. Um, I, I've been baking mine lately, and I and I spread a little bit of cheddar cheese on top of it, and they they tend to. I mean, I I think they come out pretty good. You go in the double cheese route, so yeah, cream cheese. Ah, okay. Mm-hmm. So I hate cream cheese on my poppers. I hate it. Like I think it's, <laughs> I think it's it's a it's a national character flaw, and <laughs> it's just oh. Ugh. So I have kind of sexed up the popper a little bit in the sense uh-huh. that. I still use cheap, crappy, thin bacon, but I'll lay a, a like a half a piece of that bacon out, and uh, all my jalapenos or whatever chili I choose, I blister off the skins first, okay, and mm-hmm. and then and lay them out like a, you know, I seed them and take and and take the uh, skins off, so it's like a you put the bacon down and then I will you know run that roasted jalapeno through some vinegar or Italian dressing or or something to make it to give it a little acidity. Then on top of that, I roast just scads of garlic heads. You know, I'll roast like six or eight garlic heads and squeeze that garlic out. And that roasted garlic serves the purpose of the cream cheese. And then on top of that goes a, just a lightly salted dub breast. And then you roll that up and toothpick it. And it's amazing. Sounds good. The cool thing about that too, is that you can do those, all of those chilies, in advance and you can do all of that garlic head in advance so you can have like a tub of, of roasted garlic 
done. You can have all of these chilies done so that when you come home from the, the dove hunt on Labor Day, all you got to do is pop open those two tins, go and it just it doesn't take any longer than a regular popper if you do that prep work on the 31st. Yeah, I'm, I'm a cream cheese optional. Um, I usually put like the minimum amount because I, I, I'm not a huge cream cheese fan anyway. But I have experimented with some other sort of semi-soft, soft cheeses um, mm. over the years. Some of them tend to melt into the fire. Some of them don't. Um, but in the end, I kind of end up with the classic. But I really like the garlic idea. I'm a big garlic fan. I'm going to have to try that. I've also done – I do a one that's that's dedicated to um, to Arizona where it's a date. It's a It's a – you cut a date in ha- partially in half, and you marinate your dub breasts and put the date on it, and then you wrap that in bacon. That's mm-hmm. super good because that's like meaty, sweet, spicy, salty. Mm. Dates and bacon just go together. Right? <laughs> it's so good. I got to try that. So the cool thing about doves is that they are built for their season. Like there's, I don't think there's any other game animal that is built for their season than doves because a whole dove, which like we said, takes – seconds to, to do one little tip on plucking doves if you got like big old longshoreman fingers just ease up or have your sister do it like it's <laughs> you can you can manhandle a dove where you like you can smear that skin right off if you're really really ripping on it have a little finesse and do it a little bit lighter and it goes and you're done but if you try to like you know you're, you're going to rip the dove like i i saw this with uh, andrew zimmern he we took him dove hunting for his tv show some years ago and his first one he just like completely manhandled i'm like dude you're a tv host you're not like a construction worker just lighten up a bit but whole doves are built for the grill or the barbecue or even the smoker so they're inherently perfect for outdoor cooking because they sit on the grates really well they really like hot and fast. They really like slow and low, and they really like smoking. And the thing about that is there are so many ways to go with it. So what I have done over the years is I've really explored the, the grilling and barbecue traditions of various countries and cultures to to find really great things to do with doves. And the, the, I think the big recipe I did last year was I, I actually took a, a couple limits of doves and cured them. So I, I – brined them with a little bit of curing salt and then i smoked them really really slow at like 165 170 degrees until the interior of the breast meat hit about 145 150 which is a little hotter than i want but it's not too bad it's still nice and pink and then um i served those with a uh, guajillo sauce from uh, like a sonoran sonoran mexican guajillo sauce and it was super good i mean this is the other fun thing about dove about any kind of eating a doves like no matter how you cook doves with a couple exceptions it's with your fingers it's it's a party right yeah they're hey. hors d'oeuvres yeah you gotta get, gotta get down and dirty that's for sure. and that's actually kind of a good character thing so like if you're out there listening to this and you're wondering if this if your potential boyfriend or your potential girlfriend is worth keeping serve them whole doves <laughs> on the grill and if they won't get after it yeah i'm pretty sure you don't want to know that person <laughs> i used to have a, a test question when i used to go on first and second dates back in the back when i was younger you know you, you ask her like so you know what kind of you like chicken right and everybody likes chicken so well, what kind of chicken do you like well what, what what part you know what's your favorite chicken dish and if she says skinless boneless chicken breasts eh, it's probably gonna be the last date <laughs> 
<laughs> that's no fun, right? <laughs> right? Because if you if you if skinless boneless chicken breast is the exact wrong answer, it means that person hates food and they and they eat to live and they don't live to eat. And I want to be with somebody who lives to eat. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Do you guys have any other methods that you uh, you cook doves? No, that that tends to be, you know, again, and I haven't hunted doves a whole a whole, you know, as long as as you folks have, but um, you know, that tends to be the the only way. I really want to branch out and and try different methods, and you know, that's part of the reason why I picked up your book, obviously. So, you know, I want I want to utilize that, you know, some of those recipes in there, and just you know, try something new. And and, and you know, I, I think the the poppers are, you know, again, you know, a great way to kind of segue someone into, um, you know, trying it out, you know, for the first time as far as gaming goes. And yeah, I definitely want to, you know, try the, uh, the doves a la mancha, you know, that seems to be something that I think would be pretty popular here in my household, I think. Yeah, that's, that's, that has become my signature dish, actually. I, if you, I see people making dove, doves a la mancha mm-hmm. and it's, they don't even know where it's from, but they just know that it's a classic thing to do with doves. And it actually makes me feel kind of proud and in the sense that it's become a thing. Like it's become a thing in the dove world and it's, it's gotten beyond its connection to me, which I think is kind of the, 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 the mark of a, of a great dish is that it's people forget where it comes from. And mm-hmm. for those of you out there who don't know what it is, it's a whole dove that has herbs stuffed in the cavity, you know, like rosemary or sage or parsley or, or whatever makes you happy. Then you, you paint the dove with melted bacon fat and then you grill it hot and fast so that the in, so that the breast meat is about medium medium rare uh, and you could you could do medium well too that's just you just want it to be pink inside mm-hmm. and then when it comes off the uh, the grill you hit it with smoked paprika and a little bit of black pepper and then just go to town I'm already salivating it's incredibly <laughs> simple yeah, yeah. I, I actually made that last year and I because I, I picked up your book last year and uh cool. yeah it's it's good I can I can agree with that. I, uh, I'm looking this year because every every dove season I do a special new dove recipe and mm-hmm. one of the things I'm looking to do is so the Chinese eat squab a lot mm-hmm. and uh, I'm looking into squab recipes so to see if how, how I can modify it for a dove because if, if you don't know a squab is squab is basically pigeon veal mm-hmm. it's actually vaguely cruel in the sense that they raise pigeons and don't really let them fly around very much, and they get them super fat and then slaughter them and eat them. You can blame the French for that. Well, yeah, I mean they invented the whole squab process. Uh-huh. And but there's a lot of recipes for in in Southeast Asia and in China for for pigeons, and that's kind of where my explorations are looking these days. Yeah, I've got a bunch of friends that do the teriyaki and stuff like that, but um, I, I'm really interested. I'm really interested in you know, using does for something that I never would have thought of. And I think, I think I might've got this from you, but like dove enchiladas and dove tacos. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like that, I, which, you know, is a Texas staple, but, uh, or a Southern staple, I guess, Southwest staple. Um, but I, I did some of that last year too. And, um, uh, the enchiladas specifically, and yeah, it's awesome. That's a whole nother world. Like, I mean, if you, I have a bunch of recipes where if you are really a dove hunter, like, <laughs> you know, your family just came home with, four limits of doves or whatever. And so you've got a lot of dove meat. Yes. You know, I make a really bitch in chili relleno. It's a Oaxacan style. So it's got a picadillo inside it and not the cheese. It has nice. cheese, but it's mostly a picadillo. Um, so I make a really good chili relleno, which are hard to make actually. Um, if you, there's a reason why most people get them in restaurants is because they're a little tricky to make, but the enchiladas are easy. 
Mm-hmm. You know, I could do a dub taco. That'd be kind of cool. Yeah, you know? yeah. I'd, make it like carne asada. Yeah, I do mm-hmm. duck tacos a lot. I haven't even thought of that. I'll just make it like a straight up Sonoran carne asada and, you know, just go from there. Homemade flour tortilla. Talking my language. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Texas, it's like, you know, there is there is only flour tortillas in Texas. You have to yeah. ask for corn. It depends on where you go, but but yeah, just just tacos in general. It's a several times a week thing for me and I think for a lot of people here. Yeah, I mean, I think that, I mean, all of us, all three of us live in the Taco Belt. So exactly. pretty much goes from where I live. I think we're probably the northern reach of the Taco Belt would be the interior of the California Central Valley. And it will snake all the way down through Southern California, certainly Arizona, New Mexico and Texas. Mm-hmm. And then that, is, that is for sure. And then obviously Mexico. So have you done uh, I'm just thinking about Arizona and, and our, our mutual buddy, uh, Jonathan O'Dell. Have you done any green chili uh, recipes? Yeah, my enchiladas are green chili enchiladas. Right, right. Is there so anything, any other, any other uh, hatch-inspired dishes maybe well, on the horizon? I mean, sure. I mean, they're just starting to come ripe. So I just, I, I saw my first green hatch chilies in the supermarket actually yesterday. You know, the the hatch chilies, well, you when you blister them off and you seed them like that, that makes a hell of a substitute for the jalapeno in a popper. And you can you can do I mean they have hot medium and mild hatch chilies so if you have roasted hatch chilies as the the chili element in your popper I think that's the easiest and most uh, accessible way to do that I think you can do a green chili like a New Mexico green chili sauce which is different from a Mexican chili verde because chili verde doesn't have any it doesn't have a roux in it and and in Arizona and New Mexico they start with a roux and then they add the green chilies. Um, I mean, that's just a great sauce for anything. You could just make the sauce and throw it, up, throw it on a dove and just eat it on over rice. That'd be fine. Doesn't have to be complicated. Mm-hmm. Not at all. So do you guys have any plans for uh, for this dove season, given that we are in the time of COVID? Uh, for myself, it, it's, it's still kind of up in the air. The the uh, the first couple of days of, of dove season is always a little hard for me to get out. Um, it, it's it's uh, my my wife's birthday is actually you know pretty close to the first so it's it's always you know you know are we going to do something that weekend or if we're going to do something the prior weekend before we go out so or before the the opener so it's it's still kind of up in the air for me but you know I, I'm, I'm hoping to get out at least you know the second the second week of the uh the season for me covid uh is actually it's gonna it's gonna help me out a little bit uh typically our central flyway meeting that we have every August is the last week in August. And the past few years, it's been, it's been pretty far away. So I've, I always end up flying back like the night before opening day. And mm-hmm. it's just a struggle for me to get up and, you know, have plans to go. And, you know, I've been gone for a week and tired and, and those meetings can be pretty intense. So this year it's going to be virtual our meeting. And so uh, I've got, I've got all the time in the world. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm planning to get out as much as I can this September. Uh, I didn't get much hunting in last year or the year before. So uh, uh, I told my, my supervisor already, um, be prepared for me to be basically gone <laughs> the month of September. Nice. Nice. I, I, I Have you seen, I don't know if you're privy to this or not in Texas, but have you seen an uptick in license sales? I, well, so I don't know about license sales yet because usually it's, you'll see this huge spike in license sales uh, a few days before the season starts. That's kind uh-huh. of everybody like last minute, like, oh, man, I got to get my license. I got to buy shells. You know, that's when Walmart mm-hmm. sells out of all the shells. Um, so we don't know about license sales yet. We have uh, we have some draw hunts that you can you can apply for online. 
and those are are up from last year. Um, those applications. So I and I've, all the people that I've talked to, I get the sense that everybody's just just dying to get out of the house and go do something outside. So I Absolutely. think this is going to be a huge year uh, for for hunting for sure. I think so too. Are you seeing any increased interest in that kind of stuff in SoCal? I I would say yes. I mean I I'm not really sure where I where I've seen some of the uh, you know just some of the preliminary preliminary information coming out, but um, I I have heard that there has been an uptick in uh, at least fishing licenses. So you know it's 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 being uh, forecasted that there's probably be there probably will be a lot more people hunting this year, and that's uh, that's something that I mean you know, it's kind of in back of my mind you know before the season starts and 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 while I'm pre scouting as well. Yep, for sure. I mean, it's, that's we didn't really get into it too much, but you know, there are uh, a lot of public land opportunities for doves, at least mm-hmm. in the West. And you know, we talked about it, but just to sum it up, you are looking for seeds, so public land near agriculture, if possible, and if not, uh, riparians, so riversides. They like riversides because they come to pick up the grit, and there's also a lot of dead trees on riversides that they hang out in. So I've had good luck on public lands for doves um, near rivers, whether they're dry or not. Uh, So if you're listening to this in, say, Arizona or New Mexico where you have a dry riverbed in Arroyo, that's not a bad place to look. But clearly, and I think all three of us will agree, if you can get on on a grain farm or near a grain farm or sunflowers or safflower, that's money. And so that's that in and in here in Northern California, vineyards, vineyards are also quite good. So those are a few, you know, parting tips on finding a spot to go. And we didn't really get into the second season. And I might actually have you guys back at some point and talk about second season doves because, the, you know, the, the September Labor Day thing is so huge and so much effort. But there is it's actually a whole different world hunting pigeons and doves in like November and December, which most states have either the season opens back up again or it never closes. And there's a, it's a different kind of a dove hunter who figures out how to hunt doves in say October, November. I would say, um, I I would say that they hunker down a bit more, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the late season, the follow-up season, the, um, so I'm do probably doing a lot more jump shooting, I would say, uh, in the you know around November when the second season opens up out here in California. Yeah, same here. I mean, for me, it's like a target of opportunity. Like you'll go hunting for a bunch of stuff, like quail mm-hmm. or rabbits or whatever, and you'll come home with like four doves. Yeah, and that and that's that's primarily how you know I'm not specifically going out there to to hunt dove. You know, during the uh, the second season, I'm primarily targeting quail around that time. So, you know, again, it's just a, you know, tar- target of opportunity. And, uh, you know, if they pop up, then, you know, that's, that's on them, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's a one good tip. Like, so my advice before we wrap it up here, my advice is for that second season, wherever you are, make sure you know the dates of it so that then you, you actually target the Eurasians at a dairy or, or some other place where you're allowed to hunt Eurasians. And then it's because the, the regular dove season is open, it's anything goes. So you, you have to be a little bit less careful about your ID. Absolutely. So this has been a pretty good conversation. I mean, we've been going on for like a little over an hour and 20. So there's a lot to talk about with doves. I mean, there's just, it's, it's certain species that we talk about on this show um, are less culturally relevant uh, or less hunted. Like we just, we did a spruce grouse episode, which is a fantastic conversation. 
but you know spruce grouse are kind of a marginal upland bird and it was you know it was a great conversation in the sense that here's all these really cool things about this particular thing and and, and we can talk about that but doves there's we could have gone on and on and on but i'm i'm cognizant of everybody's time so before we go jorge and owen tell everybody where they can find you on this series of tubes that we call the internet certainly um so you know again the you know the people out there don't know who i am um i uh i run a website called upland jitsu and it, it basically caters to um to people uh, that are new to to upland hunting, and it provides uh, tutorials and how tos and, and just how to hunt without a dog uh, when it comes to upland game. Uh, you can find me on my website again, and um, that's uplandjitsu.com. And uh, you can also find me primarily on on Instagram, and that's upland underscore jitsu j i t s u. I'm fairly easy to find if you're looking. You know, if you have if you need to contact me about. Um... But any, anything dove related in Texas, I'm happy to talk to just about anybody. Probably the best way is just to Google my name, followed by it's Owen Fitzsimmons, followed by TPWD, and my contact info should pop up. But uh, otherwise, uh, I can give you my email address, owen.fitzsimmons at tpwd.texas, T-E-X-A-S dot G-O-V. Good deal. Well, thank you guys for coming on the show. Uh, I hope you guys have a really, really successful dove season. And I definitely want to hear about the ways that you are cooking the doves after the obligatory popper weekend. All right. Same to you. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Well, that's it for this episode of the Hunt Gather Talk podcast. I am your host, Hank Shaw. And I'd like to ask you if you would consider supporting this podcast. It is a little bit like public radio where you can support if you want and at various levels. Certain levels will get you the cookbook that goes along with this podcast season. It is my cookbook, Pheasants, Quail, Cottontail, and it covers everything Upland. Everything you would possibly want to know about cooking, prepping, and dealing with all kinds of Upland game, ranging from rabbits to every single Upland bird there is. If you support the podcast at the $35 level, you will get a signed copy of that book, and I will mail it to your door. Either way, I really appreciate you listening, and I will be back with you soon. In the meantime, you can follow me on social media at huntgathercook.com. You can also find me on Instagram, and my handle there is huntgathercook, as well as on Facebook, where I run a private group called the Hunt Gather Cook Forum. You have to answer the questions to get in there, but say that you heard me on my podcast and I will let you in. That's it for this week, and I will talk to you soon. Take it easy. Bye.